Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Sarah Pascoe. Hello, I'm Carrie Adloyd. And we're weird about books. We love to read. We read too much. We talk too much. About the too much that we've read. Which is why we've created The The Weirdos Weirdos Book Club. Join us. A space for the lonely outsider to feel accepted and appreciated. A place for the person who'd love to be in a real book club, but doesn't like wine or nibbles. Or being around other people. Is that you? Join us. Check out our Instagram, at Sarah and Cariad's Weirdos Book Club, for the upcoming books we're going to be discussing. You can read along. And share your opinions. Or just skulk around in your raincoat like the weirdo you are. Thank Thank you for reading with us. We We like reading with you. This week's book guest is The Rise by Ian Rankin. What's it about? The Rise follows Gish, a detective trying to solve the murder of a doorman in a very posh block of flats. What qualifies it for the Weirdos Book Club? Well, rich people are weird. In this episode, we discuss... London, Edinburgh, genre writing, superfans, digital books, super rich and inappropriate tattoos. And joining us this week is Ian Rankin himself. That was bagpipes. Just a warning. In this episode, we do talk about cold-blooded murder. Thank you so much for being here. Our sort of nominal premise is weird books. And your book is quite weird because it doesn't (laughs) exist. Oh, yes. It's not a paper-paper book. It's like the old-fashioned ones. It, it's not. Well, not old-fashioned, that's the fashion. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I mean, hopefully books on vellum will come back eventually, just like cassette tapes are coming back and videos possibly coming back soon. Um, really? Yeah, I didn't uh, hear this. Knows. Oh, the kids like video because they, yeah. like, they like the bad yeah. quality. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They like they a little bit They think it's cool. Of, yeah. <gasps> yeah. Like cassettes, they seem cassettes, to like the hits. Yeah. yeah. All the stuff we didn't like when we were, well, I didn't like when I was younger, <laughs> being a different generation from everybody around this table. Um, yeah, a weird book in that uh, it's called The Rise and it is coming out only as an ebook and an audio book. Yeah. So there will be no physical book. And it's the first time I've done that, which was part of the attraction for me, was doing something a bit different. Yeah. Keep you on your toes. And yeah. it's short. I mean, it's 
I think the the, the pitch was that it's, it's going to be a series of, of stories coming out from Amazon that will be, you can read them or listen to them in one sitting. Oh, I thought it was, you had to read them in one sitting. <laughs> and because I have a toddler, I had to be really specific. I was like, no, the point of the book is you can't get up, you can't stop, you can't answer the door. Sarah takes rules really seriously. I do, especially because I, I read thought, it in two sittings. Okay, so you've already yeah. broken the but rules. But it was two, again, I have two small children, so it was two bedtimes. And Because as I'm always saying to you, the Kindle is incredible mm. that you can put a child to bed and still read the story. And it's not like they go, what are you, what are you doing? Because it doesn't look very exciting to them. So yeah. I did it at two I mean, I always, I, I can't understand why short stories aren't more popular because they're perfect for yeah. commuters. Yeah. If you're on the tube or the bus or the train or whatever, or even if you're walking to and from work, you just plug your headphones in and you've got a story there, a short story. Or if you're sitting reading, you've got the one short story in your in a in a sitting. But as a writer, how does it feel when you're having to plot or put clues in and you've got a lot less time? Yeah, I was thinking that because you're used to writing. Well, again, that, was, that was one of the, it keeps you on your toes. I mean, as a writer, you can, if you're, you know, writing the same character for, I don't, I don't even want to think how many years <laughs> it is. It's almost 40 years I've been writing about wow. the same character. Um, it's nice to have a break and think about stories in a different way and different yeah. ways of telling them. So when someone says to me, do you fancy doing a libretto for an opera? I go, yes. Do you fancy doing a comic book? <laughs> yes. Do you fancy doing a, a, a play on, on stage? Yes. Um, lyrics for a song? No problem. Uh, because it just gets me thinking about how I say what I want to say mm. in, in different, you know, I once once given a challenge and it was a Christmas short story featuring Rebus, my detective, but the, 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 the editor wanted it to involve um, a game of Cluedo or similar and a deep fried Mars bar. <laughs> Right. That was the challenge. Yes. I enjoyed that. Well, it's very similar. What Carrier does is... Um, <laughs> I write deep fried Mars bars. <laughs> um, <laughs> with an improv show. I mean, because yes. improvisers sometimes do an hour long and, it, and to the audience, they cannot believe that it's all made up. But it all starts from usually mm. what, two asks, three asks. I do a show called Ostentatious, which improvised Jane Austen. And it's one, we just get the title from the audience and that's right. it. Jokes. One word. It's too specific. If you'd said it has to be about Mars bar, it has to be Christmas Eve and they, the body has to be found like mm -hmm. that, then the more you add, I think, when you're creating a story, the harder it is. Your brain pings much quicker with something smaller because then you can be like, oh, that, 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 that and that. Whereas, you know, if someone starts closing boundaries in on you as a creator, you start, the story gets smaller and smaller, doesn't it? I think it's why comedians and novelists get on so well when they <laughs> meet is because we've got very similar skill sets. Yeah. Because writers, to my mind, are usually quite shy, introverted people. Um, but we learn quite early on that if we're going to publish a book, we've got to go on the road, got to mm. go on the circuit and stand up and talk to an audience yeah, for an yeah. hour without boring them to tears <laughs> and take questions and not know what those questions are going to be. And you've got to have new material because you go back to the same bookshop year after year and you see the <laughs> yeah. same faces in the audience. Yeah. You can't tell them the same old stories you told them three or four years ago. So we are doing improv. We yeah, are doing, we're yeah. doing stand-up. Um, it's just we don't get paid for it. Well, <laughs> a lot of the time we don't either. <laughs> just so that makes you feel better. Absolutely. I and also shy, I, introverted I, people. I think that's yeah. a shock to yeah. new writers because you become successful in, in uh, you know, and uh, so people want to hear from you and suddenly you're expected to be an entertainer. Mm -hmm. the, the minimum length of those sort of Q&As is an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the pressure is on you. Yeah. So why did you write this book? Yeah, absolutely. Why did you write this? I know, I yeah. always laugh when you say money. <laughs> it's a job, you know, yeah. It's a job. There's an element of commerce in all yes. this. You know, yeah. if the yeah, money's yeah. right, yeah. I'll do it. It would be lovely if you went up to other people, you know, trades people like, so... Why did you build this wall? <laughs> well, yeah. I just I saw the bricks and I don't know, I felt they needed to be connected. So yeah. I just kept going with it. Until I had it was a vision a wall. of a brick on top of another brick. <laughs> and then... 
So we should talk about the book, The Rise. So it is, it's a new detective. That's not incorrect, is it? I yeah. was going to ask that because I'm a big Rebus fan. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if it was tempting to like ever just shove him in as a cameo. Because <laughs> like, he could have just been in the coffee shop. She could have just given him, uh, actually, I passed Rebus. He imagine, said hi. Because when you really love, you know, I was imagining like, you know, like in Friends, sometimes they would have like Brad Pitt would walk in and the audience would go, oh my God, oh, yeah, we know him. Yeah. Imagine if you were reading this story or oh, something like it. In, yeah. And then you're just overhearing a part of a phone call. Weaving I'm it into an, that I'm one. in enough trouble with the publisher <laughs> who publishes Rebus oh. <laughs> haven't, gone, haven't gone to the opposition for I this. I see, yes. If yeah, I had yeah. introduced Rebus, I think they'd blow a gasket. Yeah, they would. You'd have uh, to put character redacted. And the fun of it was getting away from that, getting yeah, away yeah, from yeah. Edinburgh, getting away from Rebus, writing about a much younger cop, um, a female cop. Have you written a, a woman detective before? Um, well, I mean... As a main character? No, not really, because Siobhan Clark, who is the detective in my books now and used to be Rebus's protege, I guess, mm. or, or colleague... I've never quite found the right story that would mean that she would be the main character. I would mm. love to find a story that felt like it was her story, but it just hasn't happened yet. But with this, I just thought, okay, I, I can do something different. And I mean, it's a it's a high concept thriller, which normally I can't do. I can't pitch. You know, when people say do a six, do an elevator pitch or a mm. six word pitch. What your book is going to be or your story is going to be, I can't do that because when I start the story. I don't know where it's going to go. That's what I was going to ask you because I just read Patricia Highsmith's book about, and and she is you know an immensely brilliant plotter just like yourself. And it was incredible to read because you always imagine that someone has all yeah, of these beats the planned notes out before they it. even start to sort of flesh it out. And she said, oh, I, I sort of know the middle when I start the beginning, and by the middle I know the end. And yeah, how's that that's for you? that's pretty. That, I, I think people are surprised that that many crime writers are like that. It, we don't kind of retrofit. We don't start with the ending and work our way backwards. We actually make it up as we go along. So when I start a book, there's usually a murder. There's usually a victim from page one because that grips grabs the reader from the get go. But I don't know who killed them or why, and I just follow the detectives around as they're coming to their conclusions. And at some point. The book says, okay, Ian, this is who did it, this is why they did it, and then I can relax. But that doesn't happen until normally two-thirds of the way through the first draft. So until then, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. But what's fantastically authentic then about that is because the rise, like all good detective stories, you start, every character who's introduced, it could be them. Oh yeah, and, and for you writing like it, mm-hmm. you're feeling that it's as the same well. thing. You're, you're setting up lots of suspects. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. and and you, you you think, oh, maybe it's you. And I've had that happen. I've had that happen where I think, oh, I'm sure it's this. This is the killer. And then halfway, wow. two thirds way through the book, the book goes, no, no, you're wrong because that person is also dead, and it's somebody else completely. <laughs> you uh, are you are your own audience in a way. Then yeah. you're, you're the same as the but audience. I love that. I it. love yeah. the f- I, it. Keeps me interested if I don't know what's going on in a story. Um, yeah, yeah. And I need to write the story to find out what's going on. And you have to pay attention. I think that's what's lovely about this. Even though it's a one sitting, two sitting book, <laughs> you're having to really like. Yeah, everything's coming your way. You're having to be like, hang on a minute, where, where were they? What's happening? Where's the key fob? Like, you can't let yeah, things yeah, slide yeah. by you. Yes, there's lots of things that are set up very quickly at the beginning that you know as a reader are important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> there's a lot going through. But And your, my brain instantly was like, oh, it's them, it's them, it's them. And, oh, no, you know, which is, a, again... But that's why detective fiction allows the reader to become... The detective. The, the yeah, detective, yeah. because you're not the character of the detective, you are... Your God, <laughs> your God, watching the detectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finding out as much as they have. You said that. So obviously, the rise is set in London versus what you've written before. 
how how was that like what did the two cities offer because I feel like we should say the rise is set in this kind of extremely luxury flat complex in the centre of London that lots of famous or rich people live which felt to me a very London locate situation like I don't think other cities would offer that anonymous money situation. Mm. You Edinburgh's poor. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just saying the particular level of money in London. The, the, the thing that feels idiosyncratic about London is that kind of the wealth where the wealthy aren't even there. Mm. They own mm. it and they, they live it, elsewhere. They're not there. And it's you, there if they need it. You know, it's an investment. You don't even, there's a, you know, the rise is this beautiful glass building in the centre of London that you could walk past and you could have no idea it's a block of flats or if it's an office. Like the anonymousness that mm. London offers. Is that what you kind of wanted to? Yeah, it's that thing about you can sometimes walk through the posher parts of London at night and there's these huge buildings with no lights on. Yeah. There's no lights on because no one lives there. Um, and the people who do live there want anonymity. They're almost kind of locked away in their little cells and they order food in from five-star hotels next door. They don't go out. Um, uh, if they go out, they go out and they're, they're kind of, you know, bulletproof limos that are driven by bodyguards. Uh, and... But the places run, the cleaners and the security guards, the concierge, everything else, are the kind of people who can't afford to live in anything yeah. like that. So you've got those two Londons represented in one, you know, one small space. Well, including the police, actually, yeah, because yeah. what you set up immediately in the riots is a normal working person with a normal working wage being confronted with the art and the <laughs> oh, reception yes, area the and the 24-hour yeah, spa. yeah of the super rich it's yeah. not just wealthy it's not just all oh, you've got a nice house no it's proper it's, that's what i mean the proper central london living that very few people actually experience in their and life it, it came about because i was I w i'd read a few things in newspapers and then i started to read a few books about the super wealthy about dark money mm. about oligarchs hiding their money away and shakes you know um uh, middle eastern people hiding their money away in london buying property never living in it um, or people living there who didn't want to live there, like, say, a Saudi princess, mm. for example, uh, and you've got your Chinese um, high-tech billionaires and you've got this, that and the other. I just thought it's a really interesting constituency to write yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, they often like to keep their secrets secret. And if there's been a, a murder or a suspicious death in one of these buildings, a lot of people are not going to want it to be made public. So the mm. police are under pressure because, for example, in this story, the Foreign Office are saying, hang on a minute, we're trying to do a trade deal at the moment with, with the Middle East. You better tread very carefully um, with the Middle Eastern princess. And, you know, the oligarchs and the, the Chinese billionaires, the Foreign Office are going, we don't want it. We don't want it. have them leave, suddenly leave the country and take their money elsewhere. We need it here. Uh, so there's all kinds of tensions there from the get-go. And I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. I haven't read a lot of non-fiction books about dark money and money laundering and how people hide their money away in, in London. Uh, Oliver Bullock is a, is a case in point. I read uh, a couple of his books and they were fantastic. Butler to the World. I, I think I interviewed him in Edinburgh at the book festival about it last year. I just thought I would love to write about that. I've not seen that in fiction yet. No, yeah, but yeah. it's something that people are so upset about in London because obviously... What you have is, you know, a huge spectrum of an economy um, and then yeah, empty empty space when there are so many people who don't have permanent housing or don't have any access to housing at all. When they opened like, the big Battersea um, oh, power, station, power yeah. station and the flats were selling straight away to people who weren't going to be resident, they were going to keep their motorbikes there, mm. <laughs> like, those kind mm. of things. But everything from upstairs, downstairs yeah. through to Dickens has shown those two worlds colliding. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, or not quite colliding. Yeah. You know, the, the overground and the underground, the haves and the have-nots. Mm. 
Um, and it's it's true in Edinburgh. I mean, Edinburgh, you've got the new town and the old town, and the new town, when it was constructed, was constructed for the super wealthy who could afford to get away from the dirt and deprivation of the old town, which was becoming <laughs> unsanitary and overcrowded. And so you got the two Edinburghs. You got yeah. the Edinburgh of the Enlightenment, which was a new town where Robert Louis Stevenson grew up, and then you had the old town, which was impoverished and dangerous. Um, where he wanted to go, young uh, St- Stevenson as a young man would go and consort with vagabonds and prostitutes and drunks and all the rest of it. So you got that kind of world of what became Jekyll and Hyde, mm. uh, of a kind of you know rational posh man who suddenly decides the, to let his more venal self emerge. Uh, and you get it a lot in Victorian society where yeah. you'd have people going to the going to the asylum to just look at people, look at mm. people who were trapped in there because that was fun and entertainment for them. And you yeah. had, you know, the, the rich men buying girls and young women for their own pleasure and tossing them aside when they were finished with them. And that, to an extent, that of course that's still going on um, and does get talked about and does get written about. But I just thought this kind of glass, this gla- one glass building mm. with only a few people inside it allows me to explore that theme. We should say for our regular listeners, we're doing our utmost not to do any spoilers. No spoilers because you have to download it. You have to download it and read it. And, and I think it is one of read those it books in one where sitting. spoilers matter. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, we've done other books where it's like, oh, everyone knows this story. With some books, it's people aren't reading it for the plot. Yes, but exactly. with a detective thriller, yes, you it's, are. It's part of it. Yes. It's one of the things that annoys me about detective stories, actually. Really? I did one Rebus novel, and I forget, was it A Question of Blood, where I said at the beginning, right, this is what happened, this is who did it. <laughs> and, and, like a true grumpy and, writer. Yeah, and I'm, I just thought, I'm, and, I'm and th- for me, the only the only thing to be revealed was why. Mm. Why did ah. this happen? It was a school shooting, uh, and the person who did the shooting killed themselves afterwards. And so, what, what, what mm. I was interested in was the why. But of course, as I began to write the novel, the novel said, "No, that's not the killer." Oh, yeah. You know, you thought you were doing a very simple story, <laughs> giving it all away at the beginning, but you were not giving yeah. it away at the beginning. Yeah, it, I've got a much darker story to tell you," said the novel. Have you Ooh. always loved that genre? And no, no, you know what? I'm, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm the, the only crime writer I know who wasn't a fan of crime fiction before, before they started, started writing it. Uh, I, I, I watched stuff on TV. I watched Columbo. I watched Kojak. I watched uh, The Sweeney, whatever. Um, but I didn't read detective fiction. Well, I think uh, I read an interview saying that your first novels you didn't consider crime fiction. Well, the very first one, uh, first Rebus novel, I thought was an updated version of Jekyll and Hyde. I just thought, but I'll make the instead of making him a doctor, I'll make him a cop, and you're supposed to suspect that he may have committed the crimes um, because he's having blackouts and he can't remember things he did the previous day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Thinking that I was only ever going to write one book with this guy <laughs> as a central character, and so the book said tons no, no. of backstory. I mean, <laughs> yeah. my there's so much, and I don't know. And now you can, you've got to remember. Oh, he's afraid of flying because that was in book one. And there's <laughs> a, your daughter, that's in book one. His ex-wife in book one. Uh, you've got to remember all of that, which is really frustrating. And also, I made him forty years old, which was another. Another thing that came to haunt me, should have made him younger, yeah, a lot younger, (laughs) because eventually he had to retire and now he is long retired uh, and is finding it really hard to get involved in in any detective work at all as an OAP. Uh, But yeah, I became a fan very quickly because when the first book was published, A, it was reviewed as a crime novel, if it was reviewed at all. B, I got a letter from the Crime Writers Association of Great Britain Ooh. saying, oh, you've written a crime novel, you should join us, join us. Do you have to pay to join? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't very much, though. Didn't seem yes. like, and it was tax deductible. Oh, great, right. okay. So it was yeah. just like a little sort but of But also I started going into bookshops, and there was my book not in the Scottish literature section in Edinburgh, but in the crime section next to Ruth Rendell. I thought, well, mm. I better read her then. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I started reading Ruth Rendell and P.D. James and Colin 
Dexter and Reginald Hill and got into the Americans. The, 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 they were all called James, James Hall, James Lee Burke, James Elroy, mm. James Salas. And I, I just loved it. And Patricia Highsmith yeah. uh, came along. Because well, there's Paretsky. a lot of very literary writers writing thrilling page-turning books. I know there are also people who can write you know, shallower books, you know, give them to charity shop afterwards. Yeah. But, but are- Plenty of my books in charity shops, Sarah. <laughs> my son works in one, he tells me. <laughs> he does it. Yeah. Does he send you a picture? He sends me pictures. Yeah, Look course. how many of your books we've got. <laughs> you should come and sign them. Then they can put them in the window, charge more. You know what? The signed ones are less rare than oh, the unsigned ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something about an e-book, is you'll never be asked to sign it. Ah, but you know what? For years now, uh, at sign-ins, you get the occasional person who comes in with their Kindle or whatever Which and gets you to the sign Kindle. the cover with a Sharpie. Well, that's because you're big time. Yeah. Maybe. I think yeah. that's big time, right? How come I've got a Kindle right in front of me? It's quite hard to sign because it's already black. And, oh, no, like, but no, but the cover. Sh- the silver cover, Sharpie? Or you take the, you just the back, the back of the physical back of oh, the Kindle. Oh, I see. You yes, sign with a yeah. silver or a white oh, Sharpie. I, I and haven't you collect about signatures. It, yeah. You collect lots of signatures. Oh, on nice. It. Yeah. And then when you filled it up, you have to buy another Kindle, I guess. Yeah. One woman used to come in, where was it? It was Hatchards in London, I think I would do a sign. And this woman came in with her crash helmet. Oh. And she would get her crash helmet signed by wow. all her favourite writers. So she and, could make it. And she wore it. And so it got faded. And she would come back in a few years later and get you to re-sign it. Wow. Going over your old signature. Okay. <laughs> but if anything happens to her, the first thing the police do go, oh, that's helmet signed by you. Tell me the strangest one, though. I did sign yeah. a book for a woman once. And then a few years later, she said, do you remember signing a book for me? I went, not really. She said, well, look. And she turned around and pulled down the back of her T-shirt. Oh, and she no. had my signature tattooed. Oh, no on the back of her neck. Oh no, Ian. I worked in a terrible pub in North London and a man had Jeremy Beadle's face <laughs> tattooed on his calf muscle. I thought that was a myth. Oh no, I've seen that. Okay, oh, cool. Maybe there is. That's oh, great. Okay. Yeah, Tottenham Hotspur on the other side, <laughs> the other calf. Jeremy Beadle, I think, I think that's funnier. <laughs> I want the tattooists to say. It's not right. Maybe yeah. just buy another book. <laughs> maybe just go to the library. Have you ever thought about henna? Yes, yeah, henna, lovely. <laughs> you can watch it, it next year, the Edinburgh Book Festival is doing temporary tattoos of all of the, uh, the authors' signatures. No, this signatures. will go out and there'll be a queue of women with your signature on don't, their backs. No, don't. don't. <laughs> ready to show you. Each one bigger than the last. Ian, if you had to get an author tattooed yes. on yourself, who would it be and why? Uh, yeah, I would get Muriel Spark. Oh, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's my favourite author. I would definitely get And I've got a lot of books by her signed. I keep buying them at auction when they come for sale and I did meet her once uh, at the Edinburgh Book Festival not long before she died and got her to sign my copy of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie wow. so I might get that tattooed but yes. I wouldn't because I hate needles oh okay <laughs> no that shouldn't be the only reason no but I do, I do. <laughs> I could, the idea of okay. getting a tattoo people in, in middle age do often get tattoos yeah, for yeah. some bizarre reason Yeah, because they just want to feel something is that what I <laughs> I'm middle-aged now, I can say that. You can totally say that. I can say that. that, that's what happens. Yeah. Wait, you yeah. have, well, they call it like the experience bumps. Oh, yeah, so you yeah, have yeah. the experience bump of adolescence and the firsts, and I yeah. think you have that again in early adulthood, whether that's relationships yeah. or having children or, you know, travelling, and there's middle-aged. It's middle-aged, you've, <laughs> you've done got it. to make your own bumps. Yeah, <laughs> and that's tattoos. I luckily got someone, there was a press photographer at this thing where I met Muriel Spark, and he got a picture of me, and I've never seen me looking this cheesily happy. <laughs> It's like Aww. fanboying, big time fanboying. That's nice when you see that though, because yeah. I think it's a good I reminder. Been in, I would have been in my forties then as well. But that's yeah. a good reminder of why you do what you do, right? That you were a, were a reader once, and you, someone enthralled you with a story, and that's why you now do that to other people. I think I don't get, I don't get starry about anyone apart from authors. Oh yes, because yeah. it's such an intimate relationship. You know, even though you don't know them, yeah, quite often 
you know their characters. They yeah. have been with you so intimately in your life, whether mm. that's an audio book or reading. We met Edinburgh, um, at Edinburgh Festival once. Zadie Smith's brother is a comic, and so she like came to a comedian's bar and was smoking outside. And it's the kind of fanship where you can't... I would never be like that about a comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like, oh, you know, yeah, you did a good show. But it's like, mm. Zadie Smith. Yeah, it's too much. Yeah. It's too much. Did you speak to her? What, I've, I've got, got her to... name tattooed on my back. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what happens if you meet them and you don't like them, though? Yeah, that is it. That's, that's basically what it's like. Then to work... you're not a fan anymore. Yeah. But also that's what it's like to work in comedy. I'd yeah. Say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most, most comedians are very unlikable. Yeah, you do, it's, you it's do stop watching It's not happened to me, but I, one time I was in London. In fact, I was doing Desert Island Discs. It was a long time ago. And and I was in a restaurant and I could hear this noisy conversation outside. And when I left the restaurant, John Martin, the musician, was sitting there with a friend going through the third or fourth bottle of wine. Wow. And he was going to be my number one record, the record that oh, wow. if I only yeah, had yeah. one, it's Solidaire by John Martin. Was I the love one that, that album. I would take. Uh, and I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't. I just thought, which John Martin will I get? Yes. Will I get nice, fluffy John Martin or, or, you know, horribly tempered John Martin? Yeah. So I didn't. And it was my one, one and only chance to meet. One of my heroes. I think sometimes that's a good thing. Because I do think having met some people <laughs> that I really did love and then seeing their very flawed humanity, which is, of course, of course they are, they're, they're people. And then it's it does make you go, oh, God, I in my head there was, this meant so much and I loved yeah. your work and this. I think sometimes, especially with John Martin, to be able to still listen to that album and not be like, that man was really rude to me in a restaurant. But I think what's hard, you meet someone who means a great deal to you and they have never met you before and they are a normal human being with normal human beings bad moods, yeah. insecurities. It's so hard for someone to say to you, you mean so much to me. Oh, yeah, I yeah, think you're so yeah. fantastic. And there is no gracious, or it's very difficult to graciously take that information Yeah, yeah. and then continue a normal level conversation mm. yes. or what it is. Does it happen a lot, sir? <laughs> no, earlier on, I, I was... Did a, have you enjoyed this analysis? <laughs> yes. It feels like, sir. Time's, uh, time's up. A lot uh, of time, people say how amazing. I met Jason Donovan. You did meet Jason Donovan <laughs> and, today. Um, and I wanted to say to him, you know, the first theatre I ever saw, I was taken on a school trip see to, Joseph. to see Joseph. And I then close my eyes. It was just really clear, you know, he's, he's on a radio show, he's promoting, he's so bored of people saying... I saw you and Joseph. In the 80s, you yeah. were very important to me. or Because it's about me, not about him. Yeah. yeah. So you just... I think you could have said it to Jason Donovan. As long as you'd never revealed the tattoo you've got on his face. <laughs> This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
I was wondering about worthiness of victim. I was wondering, you need a reader to care a little bit about them, but not be too upset. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Sometimes do you want them to be really upset? Isn't that when the writer really sticks the knife in there? They're like, it's the person you love the most. Well, that could happen sort of later on. Yeah, true. I've I've certainly put people in my books that I I didn't like in real life and just disguised them slightly. I'm not sure I've bumped them off, but I've made them unlikable people in my books. Changing their name slightly or changing their background slightly. Yeah, because you get to sort of enjoy the things you don't like about them in real life. It's cathartic. I mean, all writing is cathartic to a certain extent, but that's really getting rid of your demons. Um, The the victim is an interesting one because, you know, I I think crime used to get accused of having the dead woman on the slab. Yeah. And the dead body was just a means of, of starting the engine of the plot. And you didn't really pay much attention to who they were or why mm. they were killed. You just wanted to focus on the investigation and the detectives, these maverick detectives or detectives with complex yeah. issues and problems. But, but also by being usually a white, attractive woman, yep. we just, you know, ticks a few boxes. Yep, society values her. We understand why it's being investigated. But yep. that's all that's important about them. Yep. And I think crime writers, people who write novels, um, along uh, quite a while ago, I think, thought we need to do more than that. You know, uh, when a, when someone is killed, then that upsets the whole fabric of their universe, the, mm. their family, their friends, their workmates, everything else. It is not going to go back to normal. At the end of an Agatha Christie type story, everything's been shaken up. But a nice, rational, middle class person who's usually not a police detective has solved it. Mm. And then everything can go back to normal again. And just, things just do not go back to normal. Mm. Even if you find out who the killer is and you put them in jail, things do not go back to normal. Something irreplaceable has been taken from the world. Yeah. And you now live in a world not only where people can die suddenly. Sorry, I was pointing at you because <laughs> you work in grief. But um, I do a lot of stuff about grief. I'm um, Jane Austen. <laughs> but people can kill each other. And, it could, can, and you might know a murderer or... I mean, the most exciting. You could even be one under the right circumstances. The most exciting. Ooh. This is someone who really loves crime fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm terrified. Well, Sarah's like, the most exciting thing well, I could be the murderer. The most exciting thing about a criminal <clears throat> is someone regular. It, they aren't monsters. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. They are absolutely you and me under either economic pressures mm. or sudden emotional bursts. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the crux of it is you have to believe that why that person did that thing. Yeah, it's amazing how much crime fiction comes back to basically the seven deadly sins. You know, why do people, and not just crime fiction, but crime fact, you know, greed and jealousy mm-hmm. and envy and everything else and rage and stuff. And I mean, I've interviewed quite a few murderers in my time in going into prisons to do visits and things and creative writing classes, and a lot of them say the red mist descended. It was like I was out of my body watching mm. someone else do this thing. Mm. Um, which, I mean, could be a defence mechanism so they can cope with the fact that they are a murderer. But, but they also might be experiencing trauma at mm-hmm. the time because I can't imagine something more traumatic. Being murdered, right? <laughs> the other, the, the second, in second to being murdered must be... Being you've killed someone. I, I think the victim's family may have other opinions. No, but but, yeah, but yeah. it was my fear as a teenager because I hated my sister so much. Yes. My fear was that something would happen and I would be holding a knife. You would snap. Because I, and I kept dreaming about it and I knew I couldn't deal with prison. And it was my fear. You got through it. You got through so it. So therefore you'd right. have to plan it really carefully so you got away with it. Exactly. She'd, yeah. she'd done that. Yeah. You'd have, you'd have no, to I fit hadn't. someone else up for the crime. <laughs> Uh-huh, I don't even uh-huh. want to joke about it. No, don't uh, even joke about that. No, don't, don't even joke about that. I went to see. I was in uh, Greece, not not mm. the uh, the play, but the mu- not the musical, but the country. I can recently. see you, Danny. Uh, I was in Greece recently on holiday and went to see uh, uh, Oedipus Rex for the first oh, time. Oh wow! In an amphitheatre called Epidavros, 
And uh, it was extraordinary because it is the first crime story. Yeah, of course. It's, it's a guy hunting for a killer, but he is the killer. Yeah. And I just thought... And the audience know the we glory all know. of yeah. already knowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're all going, why, why is it taking you so long to figure this out, mate? It's a <laughs> yeah. pretty basic thing. Yeah. You know. So what happened to the old king? Well, he was killed on the, where three roads meet by a stranger. Hang on a minute, I met a stranger and killed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned speaking to murderers. I'm very interested in your research. How important is accuracy to you when you're writing about the police and investigation? It's important-ish. I mean, it's important to the extent that you want to persuade people in these professions that you know what you're talking about. Um, so you don't feel like a fool when they say, no, actually, we wouldn't do that. Mm. We wouldn't investigate a crime that way. Uh, we wouldn't go trampling over a crime scene the way your detective does. So you've got to do all of that. Um, but at the same time, it is fiction. And you've got, there's got to be room for a little bit of licence. So my maverick detective, Rebus, would never have got away with doing what he does. No. Never. At no point in a, in a real police force would someone have got away with crossing the line as much as he did or going off. And he operates as a private detective. Yeah. within the police force. He doesn't operate as a team player. That just wouldn't be possible, uh, which is why I always refer to him as a bit of a dinosaur and his way of policing is no longer viable. Uh, and I mean, the last Rebus novel I did was about dirty cops. And we know from recent experience, uh, certainly in the Metropolitan Police, but also elsewhere, that this has never gone away. Mm. That This still exists. And this, the the cover-ups still go on. Uh, where possible even you know you think now how can you cover stuff up when you've got CCTV and you've got mobile phones and you've got people recording everything and their lives being recorded at every moment and yet people think they can still get away with yeah, stuff yeah things disappear yeah. Get, yeah and it's a tough time for people to write what are called what I write are called police procedurals right which is a subgenre people like me and Michael Connolly and, and Mark Billingham write police procedurals but it's a tough time for us because uh, um, members of the public don't necessarily think of the police as the goodies anymore. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Are they on our side? And a lot of the questions that we're now asking in our books are what kind of police do we get? What kind of police do we need? And what kind of policing do we deserve? And that's happening on both sides of the Atlantic. Michael Connolly's last couple of books have dealt with Black Lives Matter. Mm. And the fact that cops there have been seen as being, you know, sort of racist and attacking black people willy-nilly. Uh, and we've had it here with a Met and other in, in other ways. So we're having to think really deeply. Yeah, definitely. There are cold cases that weren't investigated properly at the time because of who the victim is, and it is such a sort of an upsetting thing if you thought that the world was goodies and baddies, mm -hmm. and the goodies were employed, paid by taxes, uh, and working and, for all of us. And yeah. those of us who, who write books, who write novels, think we don't want to be thought of as just the PR wing of the mm -hmm. police. Yeah, you it's know? interesting. It's like your genre has like many things, had to kind of look quite hard at itself and redefine it in a way because maybe when you started it was a much simpler, oh, the policeman is the good person. Yeah, when, I, when I started it was mostly the British police story was the story of a professional police officer. Yeah. Boom. You know, whether it was, was Wexford or whoever yeah. or Morse, it was professional police officer. And officers. you could trust him, he was like the father figure, came yeah. in, Dixley sorted out the mess. Oh, yeah. he might have a bit of a drink. Oh, Ew, yeah. well, he maybe Sweeney. likes maybe the not, ladies. Maybe not faithful to his wife. Cracker gambled. Yeah, all of that. But now if you look at the best list and you look at what younger writers are doing at the start of their career, they're doing um, domestic noir, they're doing kind of twisty thrillers, or they're reinventing the cosy. Mm. The kind of cosy, the kind of Miss Marple type crime stories yeah, being yeah. reinvented. Because um, people still want a safe place where the crime is sold and everything goes back to normal. They still yeah. want the Agatha Christie world yeah. to exist, but, but it is a fantasy. But also within actually all of it, I still think there's a little bit of not vendetta justice, but people liked the not playing by the rules so that the actual good could come up. Mm. And I guess that's much more of a grey area now. Yeah, because it's funny because the maverick cop 
that goes outside of the rules to make sure good survives also is very close to the maverick cop that mm. <laughs> covers up yes. his own crimes yeah. and deletes whatsapp messages yeah it's it was like, being bribed and, yeah, yeah it's like it's the evidence. same character trait of like the rules don't apply to me which when we were growing up was definitely like oh that mm. means you're cool you know the han solo vibe yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of, of I, crime I, if you remember the, the the show life on mars oh, i'm yeah. sure the creators of that show thought that all the audience were going to empathize mostly with the young touchy-feely mm. liberal modern day cop yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they would see the the older cop uh, from the seventies as being outmoded and just a, a bad. But no, we loved Gene Hunt. Yeah, we we didn't want Sam Tyler. We wanted Gene, more Gene Hunt. So when the when we series two came issues, along, that's what this yeah, is about. Yeah, when season two came along, there was Gene Hunt was still there. Sam Tyler was gone um, because we want the Maverick. We like the we we, we like the kind of slightly dangerous, charismatic. It's such character. a narrative. It's such a cowboy narrative. Like you know, it's it's so ingrained in us as a story of like you know, lone man comes into town, sorts stuff out. Also, but. Broken man. It's yeah, quite something often, wrong with him. Oh, yeah. That he's the yeah. reader, reader doesn't want to read about a happy man clocking off at six o'clock. <laughs> no, we want it. There's there's pain in his heart, which is what drives him to make these decisions. Perhaps we also, and maybe you could speak to this in, but like perhaps we also assume that if you were around crime and heartbreak and tragedy yeah, it's for a length you. of time, yeah. how could you be functioning healthily? It's certainly true. When I started in this game in the early mid-80s, I was talking to cops. They all drank in the same pub as me in Edinburgh, which was a, a bonus, a blessing. And it was, yeah, as you say, there was a lot of heavy drinking, there was a lot of busted marriages, there was a lot of aggro going on in their lives. They were dealing with a lot of issues or not dealing with them, blanking them out through heavy drinking. Um, etc etc and I think that culture has changed a lot I think it still goes on to a certain extent but that culture has changed a lot and now cops can have happy marriages and they can go home and, and have a family life and, and see their kids and everything else um, and they've got help they've got therapy if, if and when needed when they go to a kind of terrible situation they can talk to someone about it because you couldn't in the early days you just you went to a rape or a murder or a suicide or whatever then you had to go home to your family for dinner and you couldn't talk to them about it so you tended to stay away from your family stay in the pub with your workmates and, and I talk guess about it there gallows humor as well gallows humor oh, is yeah. a form of not coping mm. oh yeah processing what actually has happened so of course you say awful things or and i know that's still happening now but that is someone who's not processing yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's um, why police procedural books or crime fiction is popular because it's such a microcosm of masculinity, of like mm. facing really horrible things, finding it difficult to talk about them and, and the damage that does. And obviously that's a lot of, you know, either you're reading that and you are a man, you relate to it, or you live with someone like that. That was your dad or your brother or your husband. And so we can all relate to that broken man uh, narrative. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, but you know what? I mean, a lot of the great writers in the genre have been women and a lot of the great characters mm. have been yes, women. Yes, true. I'm being very... Uh, I was going to say, so, but maybe sometimes it's because they're slightly more complex. Because it, women it, in general. <laughs> yes, well, they are. <laughs> women crime writers are certainly much more psychologically complex than the male crime writers, I find. And the female... Well, yeah, but you, you read a, a lot more crime than I do. Do you think that's fair? I love it. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, would ne I would never look at a gender of a crime writer... You just ignore it. You, you, you tape over the label. I would, I would go, well, that's a woman, that would be more for me, or that's a man, that would be no, more for you me. Probably, you probably style. know this, that P.D. James used the letters P.D. so that people wouldn't know she was a woman because she thought it would put some people off buying her yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. When I started writing poetry, I was I, I was E and J Rankin. I used my oh, middle initial, and then I was nice. like, sometimes the yeah, I.J. Rankin. Yeah, I.J. Yeah. Rankin. But Ian Rankin, or in Greek, Ian Pankin, as I found when I went into a bookshop <laughs> in Greece, because um, the P is the R in, in Greek. Ah. 
Yeah, Ian Pankin. Ian Pankin. Ian Pankin uh, is not a crime writer, though, is he? He's he, a, what is he, a cookery writer? What, I, is, what does he do? I think he works in kids' telly. <laughs> Ian Pankin. <laughs> Hello, Ian. <laughs> what are you going to tell us about? Well, there's been this murder. <laughs> no, Ian, no! <laughs> we are coming to the end of our time with you. I don't have a last line because everything's no. a spoiler. I think oh, we've done oh. really well not to spoil anything. I know what I wanted to ask. Obviously, it's a contained short story but do you envision do you envision more of this detective or do you envision more short stories what's what have you signed on to i've I've signed up for nothing the next book i write will be a rebus novel um that'll start that towards the end of this year uh i love the character i think the i think gillian gish is a a great character and the thing about this about the length of this was that it made me have to think about it almost like a poet and think i've got to do this in the shortest possible Mm. number of words so there's one character who we barely see a cop in the police station and somebody says, why is she always chewing gum? Well, because mm. when she doesn't chew gum, she's on 40 a day. Oh, that's yeah. pretty much all you need to know. That's what yeah. you get. But that yeah. tells you quite a lot about the character yeah, in yeah. one line. And also the job. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of thing that, yeah. that drives you to you know, heavily smoke. Um, well, it's available to download now. It is brilliant. I absolutely We've downloaded it. it for you, like Coldplay did. <laughs> Check your iPad, it's Check there. Check your Kindle, it's already there. Yeah. Uh, it's called The Rise and it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming to Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I think it was you too. It wasn't Coldplay, was it? It was you too. Was you oh, it was too. you too. I'm sorry, Coldplay. <laughs> Coldplay would too. never do they that. Never do oh, that. No. It was you too, and you couldn't delete it. Every new Kindle will come with this story. <laughs> that was part of Ian insisted on that in the deal. And if you listen carefully, Ian Pankin is singing the song <laughs> to the novel. You can download that on iTunes, probably. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Weirdos Book Club. You can find Ian on Instagram at Ian Rankin too. The Rise is available to buy now. Next week's book guest is Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. My book Weirdo is available as is Cariad's book You Are Not Alone. Thank, Thank you, you for, for reading, reading with us. We, we like reading, reading with, with you. you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Lucy Beaumont. And guess what? I'm Sam Campbell. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy our podcast. It's called Lucy and Sam's Perfect Brains. We have a podcast and... Oh, uh, it might be. Uh, I'm, I probably don't want to sound, um, you know, like I'm bragging, but it's dynamite. It is electric. It's high voltage, and please, we really need you to listen. You don't understand how much we need this. Is it on all the platforms? Oh, it absolutely is. But um, yeah, we, th- this one is coming. This one's out now. Lucy and Sam's perfect brands. <laughs>